0: to a very strange conclusion just last week. And that conclusion pretty much is that I'm becoming old. I had to go to the eye doctor for the very first time in my life just the other day, and it looks like I might probably have to get glasses soon. That's very weird to me. I've never had to have those before. But apparently it's because my my eyes are becoming so old that I'm going to need glasses soon. But it seems like right when I got back from the eye doctor the other day, all of a sudden my hearing starts not really working. I haven't been able to hear a thing ever since Friday afternoon. And I, we had Jerry up here a few minutes ago, and I saw his mouth moving, but I couldn't hear any sound coming out of his mouth. So I don't know if I've got water in my ears, ear infection, if I'm actually losing my hearing. I have no idea, but... In the words of the wise man, philosopher, great Cody, as I hold the shield wobbly against the relentless encroachment of mortality. I mean, that is the way that my life is feeling more and more by the minute. Well, we're in our series on the giants, and so far we've seen giants of fear, of worry. Last week we saw the giant of complaining and this morning, our, our own giant is the giant of doubt. Now, what we know about doubt in Scripture is that it was doubt that had prevented many Israelites from entering into the promised land. Because, as the Hebrew writer says, of their unbelief. It was doubt and unbelief that had, had prevented an outpouring of miracles as Jesus goes to his hometown in Nazareth. And he observes their, their lack of faith. And that lack of faith had prevented him from any miracles that day. We read about Jesus encountering many people all throughout the gospel accounts who said, Lord, show us a sign that we might believe in you. As if Jesus had done nothing to convince them otherwise. Jesus says in yet another place that, that there are people in this world who simply will not believe. Even if a person were to rise from the dead and speak about Jesus. And yet, the person who I want to emphasize this morning when it comes to doubt, it might not be the person who you expect me to go to. Rather than going to Thomas, I would like to speak about doubting John this morning. And I don't mean the the Apostle John, but rather John the Baptist. Wild man John, as we might also know him as. As I think about this particular moment in John's life, I picture John in a prison cell, pacing back and forth like a caged lion, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. John, as we know, is, is a man who's fearless, And he is now in prison because he was mouthing off a little too much to King Herod about his infidelities and so forth. And yet, as as John is in prison, Jesus has just healed a young man, and he has brought him literally back from the dead. And as you might imagine, there is a lot of hysteria about this that has now reached John's jail in his prison cell. I'd like to begin in Luke chapter 7, which, which is where all of this occurs. As John hears about how Jesus has just raised a young man from the dead, here's the mission that he sends his disciples on to go ask Jesus. Luke chapter 7, and beginning in verse 16. It says that fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report concerning him went all over Judea and in the surrounding districts. And then the disciples of John reported to him about all of these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the expected one, or do we need to look for someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask you, are you the expected one? Or do we need to look for somebody else? Now, I don't know about you, but it's just one of these chapters in Scripture where it's so easy to just gloss right over and completely miss really the wonders of what are occurring here. I read this now, and I can't help but wonder, what would make John the Baptist ask Jesus, "Are you the one to come, or should we look for another one who will be our Messiah?" I mean, of course, John the Baptist knows that Jesus Christ is the Lord. There should be no question whatsoever. Of course, John understands this. Now, there might be scholars who who might say and respond, "Well." The reason why John is asking Jesus this question is because he has a couple of students who don't really know Jesus that well, and John just wants them to have it reinforced in order for them to understand who Jesus is. And yet, I really don't believe that is what is happening. Because if we look very carefully, John's disciples, they are the ones who are on the outside. They are the ones who are, are hearing and who maybe even might be witnessing a lot of these miracles that Jesus is performing, And yet John the Baptist, on the other hand, John is the one who is on the inside, who can only hear about what is going on and not see anything. He is far away from, from all of the hysteria that is taking place towards Jesus on the outside of that jail. I believe that John is asking Jesus this question because John is not so sure anymore whether or not Jesus really is the Messiah and the Lord anymore. And if this is true, if this is indeed true, what has happened to John the Baptist? What happened to this great man of such bold, brash, brave following a proclamation. Because as we know about John, this is the same exact man who said not that long ago, look, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And while he's there at the Jordan River, he proclaims to everybody who's there, this Jesus right here, this is the Lord and the God who was to come. And we just remember him saying those things, and we wonder, I mean, how could there be one ounce of doubt in this man's mind? Because we, we see here in Luke 7 just how early this is in the Gospels. It seems like maybe five or six months later, after John proclaims Jesus as the Lamb of God, now it looks like he's saying, Jesus, are you the Lamb of God? Have I made a mistake? I spent 30 years of my life waiting for this moment where I would proclaim the one who was to be here as our Messiah. I have, I have cried myself for speaking about this one whose sandals I am not at all worthy to untie. I have said that, that you were the promised one. I have proclaimed that you were God and that you were the Lamb of God. But is that true or did i get all of that wrong jesus Well, before we dismiss that that very strong possibility about john we need to recognize that a lot of things can change in our lives in a very short amount of time as we think about king solomon here's the wisest man who ever lived but did you know that king solomon went from telling his sons to avoid that which is evil, to a very short time later, maybe even sacrificing those very same sons in the fire as he worshiped false gods like Chemosh and Molech. A lot can change in a person's life in a short amount of time. Also, in the Old Testament, we remember Elijah, the great prophet. Elijah is is mocking all of the prophets of Baal, And he has so much faith and confidence in his God that he says, I don't care how much water that you douse that altar with. My God is the God who answers with fire. And God did. And, And Elijah has this great tremendous moment of faith. And yet a short time later, the very next glimpse that we have of Elijah is him cowering underneath a juniper tree, imploring God to to strike him dead because of how terrified he was of Queen Jezebel. A lot of things can change in a person's life in a short amount of time. We remember in the Gospel accounts how Jesus feeds not not really 5,000, but actually maybe 9, 10, 11,000 people. And it seems like maybe three weeks go by and the apostles are asked by Jesus, go and feed these people. And their response is, "Jesus, how in the world are we going to feed four thousand people um, the same way that we just just fed nine, ten, eleven thousand people three weeks earlier? Maybe." I think about the Apostle Peter as he hes you no know, he goes from from swearing to Jesus, "I will never deny you," I Jesus, I swear I will die with you if I have to. And just hours later, what is Peter doing? He is swearing that he never heard of Jesus. A lot of things can change in our lives in a short amount of time. Sometimes in good ways, right? As we see with the Apostle Paul, he he goes from leading a violent persecution against the church, killing Christians, to writing scripture and being killed for the cause of Christ in a relatively short amount of time. And there was a time earlier on in my life as a Christian where, where I would have heard a message like this and said, I mean, that, that's crazy. I mean, there's no way that John the Baptist would have been doubting Jesus in any way. He's John the Baptist. But I'm at a point in my life now where where, where the only thing in my mind is we need to let go of this superhero complex that we have of these guys who we read about in Scripture. What if John the Baptist really wasn't running around in capes and in tights and, and riding magical unicorns into the sky? What if John the Baptist is just as complex and susceptible to have doubts and problems as all the rest of us might be as well? What if John just happens to be experiencing his moments of doubting Christ as it appears he is here in Luke chapter 7? You see, if you are experiencing any doubt this morning, if you came in here this morning doubting in some way, shape, or form, I am not here to um, shame you. I'm not going to 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 rub your head in the mud. But rather, what I want to do is just to simply say that if you are doubting in any way this morning, you are not alone. In fact, you are in legendary company, as we see in the Word of God. I think we would all agree that the one person who had more faith than anybody other than Jesus was Abraham. Abraham had so much faith in the unseen that that it's just incredible. And yet we we all remember how how for even Abraham, how he's now 100 years old, he's told by God that that one year from now you will have a son. And what does he and his wife do? I mean, just just throw their head back and they're just laughing at the top of their lungs. God, that is so funny. Is, is a child really going to be born to a man 100 years old and to a woman who, who's 90 years old? God, we want to hear another joke. We want to hear about the joke about the three rabbis who walk into the bar. We remember Gideon, how Gideon is visited by um, an angel one day. And, and this angel says, Greetings, O oh mighty man of God. And how does Gideon respond to this? If God is for us, who could be against us? Well, almost. What Gideon actually says is, well, if God is for us, then then why are all of these terrible things happening to us right now? And have you ever been in a place like that in your life? Where you wondered, if God really is this great God who he makes himself out to be, then why am I experiencing all of these things in my life right now? We remember how the apostles spent three years with Jesus, how they were the eyewitnesses to his miracles, how they actually reached out and touched the truth, literally. And yet as the resurrection happens, there is one apostle, as we all know, Thomas, who says that unless I can reach out and actually touch the nail marks in his hands and see Jesus literally risen from the dead, I will not believe. And yet Thomas really gets a bad rap because we know that all the other apostles also had their unbelief about the resurrection. How we know that as the women returned with the news for the very first time, Jesus has risen from the dead. Their response was, it says in um, in Luke, I I believe it is, that, that it sounded as nonsense to their ears and they would not accept it as the truth. And yet as for us, we, at least if we're honest, we also either have had our doubts before, or one day we will experience those doubts for ourselves. Or maybe, maybe a lot of times we might just just hear something and a seed is planted in our minds. Or we hear a person say somewhere that, that if God is so good, then why does God allow infants to die of AIDS, of, of cancer, of all these horrible infirmities? If God is all-powerful, then why does he not stop world atrocities as they happen? I've been asked many times as a minister in the past that, well, what about my, my, my mom or my father or my spouse? They weren't exactly a Christian when they died. Is, is God going to send them to hell? And then I'm asked, why would a loving God do something like that? Many years ago, I had been asked by another woman in the church about the Garden of Eden, how it says that, that you can eat everything that you see except for this tree over here. And the question that she had posed to us is, why is God playing games without a need here? We might hear questions like, well, well why are there some people who were born with with a weakness, with a physical handicap of some sort, if God really is all-powerful, and if God is good. why, Why would God do that to a person? If we're honest, doubt has its place in our Christianity. Because doubt, there is a good kind of doubt. Because this good kind of doubt, it prevents us from really concocting a strong theology about God. Doubt, it helps us to establish and to stand on our own faith, not our parents' faith, but our own individual faith. Doubt can be good in the way that it questions and even challenges many of our well-guarded customs and our church position sometimes. I find it very interesting how Jude, in his book, Jude never says to To shame those who have doubts. But rather what he says is, if there's any there, or he says, if there's anyone among you who doubts, have mercy on those people. And why is that? It's because nobody is immune to having doubts. And there's one minister who, who expresses it this way. He says that there are these five minute patches ever so often or I lose faith. Times where I wonder, is this thing real? Times where I I think and I ponder to myself, God, are you there? And he says that if you never experience these five-minute patches ever so often, then maybe you might want to check your pulse. Also, there is another writer who says this. C.S. Lewis said that that I think the trouble with me is lack of faith. Because so often as I pray, I wonder if I am writing letters to a non-existent address. And has your life as a Christian ever felt anything remotely like what I just described? There is the type of doubt that results in distrusting unbelief and a prayer is being rejected. And yet then there is this whole other kind of doubt. A very appropriate kind of doubt. When our perception of God and of his kingdom are in the growing pains process of blossoming and becoming something more vivid, more deeper, and more accurate as a comprehension of who God truly is and what his kingdom is really all about. And yet, with all of this being true, the question still remains. Why specifically is John wrestling with doubts? Well, John is not wrestling with doubt because he never knew who Jesus was before. As we know, John and Jesus share a very close connection that, that very few others share, in that John is the cousin of Jesus. John, as we know, had been born only a few months before Jesus had been born in the manger, and so they had grown up together as cousins. And yet, as we also know in Scripture, even that was no real guarantee of true belief. Because as we read all throughout the Gospels, how on one occasion, Jesus' own brothers were not believing How we read in the Gospel of Mark how even his own relatives came to him at one point as Jesus is speaking and says that they laid hands on Jesus and they they simply led him away somewhere, saying that he's out of his mind. They thought that Jesus was crazy, his own relatives. And yet John and Jesus share even a, a much closer connection than even that one. And that's because John the Baptist was the one person in history who would baptize Jesus in the Jordan River. What's interesting about this is that as as John brings Jesus up out of that water, John would have seen with his own eyes the Holy Spirit illuminating on Jesus as a dove, it says. John would have heard with his own ears God's voice as he hears God the Father's voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Those are very compelling evidences to the lordship of Christ. And maybe there are are other reasons why John is doubting, though, in prison. Maybe it's because he is idle for the first time in his life. Now, as we know, John is a very active man of the wilderness. He is this great outdoorsman who is always on the go, it seems like, eating locusts and wild honey and wearing camel's hair for his clothing. And yet now John is in this jail. Now, when it says "jail" in the text, know and understand that this is not at all like the jails in our own time. But what this is referring to is a dungeon, sunken down into the earth, which is far worse than the jails that we have been accustomed to. So maybe it's idleness that is causing John to to waver in his faith towards Jesus, where day after day and month after month, he is languishing in this jail, seemingly alone. But if I had to guess one thing above all the others, why John appears to be doubting, I would say that it's likely because John really doesn't understand who Jesus is. As we've seen as of late in our, our lessons here, It seems like every single person who is around Jesus has this idea and concept of the kind of king that they want him to be. They do not understand that Jesus is going to be the king of kings for all people of all nations of all times. They just want Jesus to be king over Israel for that specific generation. And if it's true that that even the apostles had this misunderstanding about the kingdom. Would it not be that much more understanding if John the Baptist this early on in the ministry of Christ also had this idea about the kingdom of Christ? See, I read this text and I I just ask myself, what if John is doubting simply because he is just as confused and offended at the kind of Lord Jesus wants to be versus the kind... Of Lord that they had expected him. To be. As we remember, it's it's John who says of Jesus that His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will clear His His threshing floor. What if, as John says this, He's got it in His mind that that okay, here's what this means. This means that Jesus is going to come in, and He's going to kick the Romans out, and He's going to return our nation to their problem. But Jesus said that it was going to happen. But it has not yet happened. And so maybe John is thinking to himself that I, I thought Jesus was, was going to come in here and start cleaning house. And the fact that he has not yet done that, maybe he really isn't the, the king that we have made him out to be. Simply because his understanding of the kind of Lord Jesus was to be was just as as off as everybody else's was. But maybe there's another reason. Maybe being in jail has simply crushed John's spirit in addition to everything else. Maybe John is, is standing there in prison thinking, you know what, if Jesus really was this great Lord and King, then what in the world am I doing in this prison cell, day after day, after day. Maybe something has imprisoned your heart this morning as as you sit here, where you believe in the power of Christ, but it just seems like it's very slow right now in your life. It's not this immediate process. Or maybe Jesus is 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 showing himself in your life in ways that, that you did not really attribute to him before as Lord. As the legendary NWA lyric says, I'm just wondering where Christ is in this crisis. Maybe you are wondering right now, where is Christ in the midst of my cancer? Why is it that I still have not found a spouse and I continue to be lonely? Why is it that that I'm unable to to really find a job still? Well, what I like about what John does here Jim is that even though he seems to be experiencing doubt here, John takes those doubts to the absolute greatest place where he could ever take his doubts. John takes his doubts straight to Jesus through his messengers. You see, I I really am, am impressed by this, because this, more than anything, is a precursor to what prayer is. Because really what prayer is, is it is an opportunity for us to ask Jesus all of our questions. That we can actually approach the King of Kings and the creator of this earth any time that we wish to. We can come to him day or night with all of our fears, with all of our worries, with all of our complaints, and we can approach him with all of our unbelief and our doubts. And yet, what I love most about this text, though, is that is, is how Jesus answers John's question. Notice in the text how Jesus does not become angry when he hears that, that John has asked you this question. Notice that there is nothing in the text that has Jesus sighing and going, Oh, man, you put one guy in prison for a couple of weeks and this is what you get. I mean, he just doesn't believe in me. But instead of doing that, really the essence of what Jesus says in response, it really seems to be, oh, John, I love you so much. Man. You want more proof that I am the one who was to come. Then he tells his, his students, I want you to take this message back to John. And virtually the answer that he gives them is that the evidence that you see. It's everywhere around you. It says in in verse 21 here in our text, it says that at that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and he said to them, go and report to John what you have both seen and heard. How the blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preaching. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Now in that last part, as he says that, about how, how the one is blessed who does not take offense him, what this word means is being shocked or is being offended. At other times, it means that you literally fall into a trap. And that's because really countless people in the Gospel accounts they were very shocked, very offended at the poverty of Jesus, claiming that he was king of kings. There were a lot of religious leaders who took offense, who were shocked at the way how Jesus loved people who they absolutely despised. In the world today, people remain shocked and offended at who he lets into his kingdom, at who he calls us to love and to forgive as if they were our closest friends. Really, regardless of who seems to be doubting in the pages of Scripture, we we see the same exact result of the evidence is everywhere around. At the very end of this book, in chapter 24 in Luke, Jesus has now been resurrected from the grave, as we know. And there are a couple of men who are walking on the road one day, very sad and just completely dejected in their hearts, saying that that we thought that this Jesus was going to be the one. I mean, we we believed that he was going to be the one who was going to return our nation to their problems. Notice how they used that in the past tense. That we had thought that he was going to do this, but he just wasn't able to do it, I like guess. But notice in verse 32 what happens to those doubts once Jesus makes it known that it was him who was walking with them all that while. After they they, they realized that they had just been, been hanging out with Jesus, verse 32 says that they said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road as he was explaining these scriptures to us? Then in verse 34, it says that that they had said that the Lord really has risen. They had doubts at first, and yet the evidence of the risen Christ, it was right there, walking with them, sitting down with them at tables. It was right there in their midst. I mentioned the, the apostle a moment ago, Thomas. How he goes from saying in John chapter 11 that, that I will die with Jesus to that I will not believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead until I actually see it. But he goes from that doubt to, to then ultimately saying, he sees the risen Christ now and he says, my Lord and my God. His evidence was 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 right there in front of him. And here, as we've seen with John the Baptist, John the Baptist goes from saying, look, the Lamb of God, look, this is the true God. He goes from there to actually saying, but is he the Lamb of God? Is he the true God? To at last, he's told by his students that we have seen Jesus do these incredible, incredible things. This is really happening. Jesus has just told us to let you know that what we see and what we report to you, it is the honest to God truth. You see, as Jesus mentions all these people, how the lame walk and how the blind see and so forth, Jesus is intentionally tapping into Isaiah chapter 35, very messianic scripture. And what he's saying, in other words, is that I am fulfilling every single one of these things and then some. I wish we knew what became of John's faith. As his students come to him, and they relay the message of Jesus to him, I would would like to think that his faith had been strengthened and resuscitated that day. Soon John would be beheaded in prison. John never got out of that jail. And yet what about us? Well, I would like to recommend two simple things very quickly as we close this morning. I would like to say, if you find yourself remembering when you doubted, just look down far below. Because when we're up on the mountaintop, when, when God has brought us through so many things, we can see just really how much he's rescued us from. All the things that God has brought us through. We remember all of those restless nights that we had spent wondering, God, what are you doing? Are you even there anymore? But now as we look down, then we can see exactly what God was up to. God, all that time, he was molding us into something that's actually beautiful. And that is looking more and more and more like him. And yet maybe you might be sitting here with doubts this morning if that is you, then what you need to do is just look up. Look up high above at that mountain and ask yourself, am I going to to really trust that God knows what he's doing? Am I going to let him change my perception of who I think he is and what I think his kingdom is all about? Because I guarantee you that, that if you let him do that, Your understanding of who you think he is, it is elementary this morning. It is about to increase, and it's about to grow in ways that will shock you. I look back now, and I can see exactly why God allowed certain people to psychologically traumatize me. It happened so early on in my ministry, over and over and over again, simply because I believe God wanted me to to learn from the get-go. Exactly how to love people. And I mean really, really love people. And how to really, really forgive people. And then lastly, what what we need to do with our doubts is we must have the willingness for us to shrink. I mean, John could have taken his own advice. As he says earlier on in the Gospel of John, as he speaks about Jesus, he says something so eloquent and profound as he says about Jesus, that that he must increase. I've got to decrease. I've got to shrink. And we will find, if we will do this, is that the smaller that we become and our doubts become, really the larger and the larger and the larger our God becomes. And the larger that our God becomes, the, the smaller the giants of fear and worry complaining and unbelief are going to become right before our eyes as we live in this world. Maybe what we need to do in response to this message is is remember what Jesus once asked his apostles. As he said, why are you troubled? And why are doubts arising in your heart? I think a fitting response to that question comes from a man who had a possessed son. He says, Jesus, this this unclean demon has thrown my son into the flame trying to kill him. But Jesus, if you can do anything at all, please take pity on my son. And I imagine with this beaming smirk on his face, Jesus responds, if I can, if I can. Do you know who you're speaking to? He says that all things are possible to him who believes. And then this man's response to Jesus, six words. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Maybe that's what we have this morning. Do you have any unbelief this morning? This is what we need to say to Jesus. I do believe, but Lord, help these areas where I have nothing but honor. Are there doubts arising in, in your hearts right now? If there are, take all of these doubts, not to the Lord who might be able to help you, not to the great I was, but take your doubt and your unbelief to the great I am and to the God who is more than able to do, far more sufficiently above anything that we could ever ask or imagine. No matter how our, no matter how our doubts are going to appear before us in our lives, the evidence is all around us.